I like to think of it in terms of um, deconstruction and reconstruction. And so a lot of what a lot of us go through when we walk away from, you know, any sort of theology or faith that was at the center of our lives, be it Calvinism or something else, a denominational affiliation, you name it. Um, man, it, it's like losing your home, you know, and so you just feel homeless and you know what you don't believe, but you don't know what you do believe. And a lot of times you don't feel like you have the space to put it all back together again. Um, and it's a painful, I mean, it, depression is really the best way to explain it. You get lost and you feel depressed. And so um, I always take people to the book of Job. Um, you know, Job is someone who almost more than any other place in the Bible, you see someone doing theology in real time. Like Joel has this, Job has this picture of God and who God is. Um, he goes through some things that cause him to question that. Other voices come into the conversation in the form of his three slash four friends who keep trying to tell him, you know, it's so obvious what God is doing here. And you just need to believe what you've always believed. Praise God. Don't doubt. Get over it. Move on with your life. Job can't do it. Job can't walk away. And Job says like some terrible things to God, you know, outrageous, blasphemous things. And yet, you know, at the end of Job, God says that Job's friends who told Job to praise God, don't doubt and get over it, that they spoke wrongly of God and that God's anger is kindled against them. And then God says that Job, who said all these absurd things about God, has spoken rightly and tells Job, you better go offer a sacrifice for your friends so they don't get what's coming. And I think that's just a beautiful way to process what it looks like to faithfully handle your doubts. And so what I think it is, is when you got doubts, you bring them to God. And if you don't believe in God, you tell God you don't believe in God. Uh, you keep the conversation with God going, even when you don't have anything nice to say. And even when maybe you don't believe there's a God, the people who leave faith are not people who have doubts. It's people who have doubts and think they are not allowed to have them. Those are the people who leave faith. I've so rarely seen someone who was honest about their doubts leave faith. It's usually someone who had them, bottled them up because they didn't think they were allowed to. And their doubts ate them up from the inside, and they eventually imploded. I don't Welcome back to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am Seth, your host. Before we get started, the obligatory, I need your help. So as you hear this, if if any of these shows speak to you in a way that you're like, man, that was a good question, or mm, I don't agree with that. Either way, please share this on social media. Tell your friends about it. Tell your family about it. I would love to have as many people engaged in the show in a middle ground so that we can have honest discussions about conversations that we don't have at church. Thank you so much to those of you that support the show on Patreon and the iTunes reviews and everything else. All of that impacts the show more than you will ever know. Enough of that. Today I was able to speak to Austin Fisher, who is a pastor at Vista Community Church in Temple, Texas. He's an author a minister, just overall genuinely great guy. The conversation was very fun to have. So we talked about Calvinism, we talked about doubt and grief and loss. 
we talked about a lot of things. Uh, I think that you will enjoy it, and I would encourage you, if you are of the Calvinist mindset and you're listening to this, just keep an open mind. Uh, know that I know where you are. I've been there. I'm no longer there, and that's okay. And it's also okay if you never leave from there. But I think the conversation and the topic of what Calvinism can and cannot help us with is an important one to have. So here we go. Can someone hear me now? Austin, thank you so much for being able to join the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Um, I'm, I heard about you when I when I spoke with Brian Zahn, and he had advised me after the fact to to go and watch a debate that you did with his. I heard you speak, and then I continued for hours upon hours upon hours to continue to watch you speak, and then really wanted to talk with you. So I appreciate you being able to make time to come onto the show. Oh, it's a privilege to get you, man. Thanks for having me. What's your story, Austin? Before we get into a bit of the of the topics of you know Calvinism and doubt and faith and Jesus and and everything else uh, that we would talk about at a church, what what is your story? Where how did you get to where you're at now? What has impacted you? Oh, um, uh, Cliff Notes version here. So <laughs> I we didn't really grow up going to church. Um, my dad had a pretty negative experience with church growing up, um, and so. We went here and there, but for me, church was, um, you know, the the sad, stuffy place where I went and learned that a sad, stiff, stuffy God was really disappointed in me. And so that's all I thought about church. And I thought you only took your faith seriously if you didn't have any better options. Uh, And I didn't want Jesus to come in and mess up what I had going on because I kind of enjoyed what I had going on. And so it took um, a guy who was a little bit older than me, who was a normal guy who loved life, but followed Jesus and did it well and took his faith seriously. And it was the kind of center that held his life together for me to go, Oh, if you can follow Jesus and it can look like that, then, then maybe I can follow Jesus. And I think we all need somebody who lives out faith in a way that could sync up with who we are. Um, Cause a lot of times we think we have to become a different person to take our faith seriously. And so he was that for me. Um, and that's when gosh, I was probably in high school kind of started sorting through things. Um, Went to college, not planning to be a pastor. Uh, I thought I'd be a lawyer. My parents said I was good at arguing, and so I might as well make some money. Um, so I went to school to do that, but started taking a few philosophy, theology classes, really enjoyed them. And uh, there was never a burning bush for me. You know, it was kind of one little step after the next in that direction. And I still don't quite know how I ended up being a pastor. Uh, for me, God's will is kind of a mix of something you're good at, something you enjoy, and something that can bless the world. And any place where those three things overlap is a good place to be. And so if I've just moved in that direction over my life, it ended up meaning I'm a pastor. So that's the really Cliff Notes version of how I became a pastor in my kind of journey of faith. Yeah. How long have you been a pastor? So I've been at the church I'm at now for six and a half years, and I was a college pastor um, in a church outside Wega for about two and a half years before that. Eight, eight, nine years, probably, yeah. Being that I'm also from Texas, and I asked the same question of Sean Palmer, just because I like to laugh, 
when I left Texas, In-N-Out didn't exist. It was only in California. So yeah. you got to go right now. Is it is it Whataburger or is it In-N-Out Burger? Oh, Whataburger, easy, man. Let's see that. Um, we're going to be fine. Boy, through and through, <laughs> down to my bones. I'm a Texas boy. <laughs> we're we're going to be fine. I still have not eaten In-N-Out Burger. I refuse to. It's been here for a couple of years and I won't do it. I'll be honest. So the last time I had In-N-Out Burger was in the year 2000. And when I went home a few weeks ago, before Easter, I had one just because I felt like almost 20 years, it was time to have one again. Only, bo- only okay. bought, only bought the burger though, but it, it's, it's gotta be a decade thing. So, um, so you are probably most well known for a book that you wrote about Calvinism and not being that anymore. Talk a bit about that. What is the, the genesis of that or where does the beginnings of that book? What, what was that pivotal precipice that you fell off for that? Yeah. So for the book, I didn't set out to write a book. I was a college pastor in Waco. Um, most of my students were heavily influenced by people like, uh, you know, Matt Chandler, Louis Giglio, John Piper, Mark Driscoll. That was kind of at the you know peak popularity for the kind of new Calvinist. So I had a, students come ask me questions about it all the time. And I thought, man, you know, I've kind of had this journey. I ought to just write some stuff down so I can give it to them. It ended up kind of stumbling into the book. Um, my personal journey with Calvinism, um, and it really started with a, a professor. So, so my friend who kind of discipled me and helped me understand what it looked like to follow Jesus, he was also a Calvinist. Um, and so my, I cut my teeth on reading everything John Piper had ever written. I've still read more John Piper than I have any other author in the world. Like almost every Piper <laughs> book I read him. Um, and so that's what I, I grew up on and cut my teeth on and go into passion and, you know, Louis Giglio and, and the whole thing. And so when I came to college, um, I ended up having a professor who was a brilliant guy and he was the first, I knew he wasn't a Calvinist. Um, and he was the first, because I'd been so insulated growing up around just Calvinist voices. I really thought that you could only be an intellectually serious Christian if you were also a Calvinist. Um, I thought anybody else was soft or sentimental or, you know, too humanistic or whatever it was. And so he was the first person I encountered who was incredibly smart, well-read, educated, who wasn't a Calvinist. And so he started slowly kind of just pushing little buttons with me, asking, basically asking me to connect some dots and just go, well, if you believe this, then you also have to believe that. And if you believe that, and then you also have to believe that. And when you get to the end and the last domino falls, where does that leave you and what kind of God does that leave you with? And does that make the very ability to do theology incoherent? And so that was a long journey of, gosh, two, three years, honestly, transitioning out of Calvinism, because for me, Calvinism was Christianity. Like I felt like I was leaving my faith when I left Calvinism. And so that's why it was so hard for me. Yeah, I can relate with that. I didn't know when, so when I left, um, Texas from high school and came to Liberty over here in Virginia. That's, and then, you know, met a woman, got married, life starts. Um, I thought that that was Christianity. Like John Calvin mm-hmm. just was, you know, we've got Paul, we've got Peter, yeah. we've got Calvin, you know, we got uh, Athanasius yeah. and Augustine. He's just one of these names. You know, it's, this is what it is. Church history <laughs> goes from Jesus to Paul to Augustine to Calvin. Yeah. To Pike. Yeah. Well, you can even Edwards. you can even get the genealogy all the way to Calvin, I think if you yeah. if you try, if you try hard enough. You uh-huh. you said something earlier. Is there a difference between new Calvinism and Calvinism? 
Uh, I mean, technically, yeah. And, you know, this is, you know, Roger Olson's a friend and mentor of mine. And so he he's better on the history of these mm-hmm. things. He's precise with it. Um, you know, I don't know that. So let's say the new Calvin, the new Calvinism, whatever you want to call it, um, is, you know, I think basically a variation of Edwards and Calvin's Calvinism. And, you know, there are all sorts of reform folks, but the new Calvinist, I think, are a form of a more extreme high federal Calvinism. Um, and so a lot of, you know, Calvinists actually believe a lot of different things. Like, I, so I actually... I'm the co-lead pastor of a church with a guy who's a Calvinist. Uh, we can talk about that later. Um, That's a very fun relationship. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. So I practice what I preach when it comes to, you know, unity <laughs> and list of diversity. Um, and so, you know, he he wouldn't sign off on some stuff that like a Piper would or a Driscoll would. Um, what I mess with my, my other lead pastor about, though, is I think he's inconsistent. And what I appreciate, even though I really disagree with like a Piper, a Driscoll, a Calvin is they're very consistent. And so if they think that their beliefs lead them in a direction, they will go all the way down the rabbit hole, no matter how absurd it may make their beliefs seen. And, you know, there's a certain mental integrity to that and to the new Calvinism that I really can't appreciate. So you're no longer reformed. So what's, what was the deal? What was the big domino for you that started those to fall down? Kind of break through that for those listening. And, and the method behind that is a lot of the audience that listens to this show are people of a similar age up to the younger baby boomers in like a handful of 10 or 12 countries. So yeah. that's it's not, and, I, and from what I can read, there is, or hear in, in all the churches and the youth and the, you know, the young life movement and all this other stuff is there's a, a huge resurgence of Calvinism, which being that I, can't I, I'm not one anymore really aggravates me and I, I can't put to voice why so what was it for you that that made it what was that one point people talk about five point four point three point um yeah. what, what was it that that began that uh, this can't hold water and so if this can't then this also we have to evaluate yeah. this yeah um so to kind of jump straight to it I mean the, the difficult thing for me and I think for most people once they understand Calvinism and I've always said Calvinism, uh, the more you understand Calvinism, the less sense it makes in a certain sense. And by that, what I mean is, and again, it has it has inner coherence. It does. But where it leads, I think, is a pretty incoherent place, at least morally and theologically. And so double predestination, I mean, to cut straight to it is, in my opinion, um, an essential piece of consistent Calvinism. And I think most, again, of the best and brightest New Calvinists and the people who inspired the New Calvinists and R.C. Sproul, John Piper, Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin, going back further, they would all affirm that double predestination is inescapable. And so, and so, for those listening, what what is that? Double predestination being the belief that it's not just that God, it's not just that the world fell somehow, uh, that everybody then deserves to be damned, and then God graciously elects some for salvation, but it's that however you wanna explain it and different people explain it differently. God desired the fall of humanity. Um, God wanted humanity to fall into sin so God could then glorify himself by saving them. And so after God has ordained the fall, however that works, um, God decides to elect some, pass over others. But this isn't like when we say some get passed over, it's a very active thing because again, God has desired that the overwhelming majority of humanity, if you listen to most Calvinists, will suffer eternal conscious torment forever for his glory. Right. And again, 
that God desired that. It was mm-hmm. an important part of what God wanted to do to glorify himself. And so once you believe that about God and you go, so God could create the overwhelming majority of humanity with the desire to damn them forever for his glory, you've basically just come, in my opinion, to the heart of a moral abyss where I don't know what it would mean to call a God who did something like that good or loving or just, or basically any of the classical attributes that we would want to give to God, ascribe to God, I don't think they make sense anymore if God's capable of that. Like, I don't think anyone would say someone who was capable of, you know, murdering somebody in cold blood is also a good person. And yet we're supposed to say that God can do that and still be good because he's God and we can't question it because he's God. Yeah. But you've gotten yourself into trouble at that point. Yeah. Well, and in this case, not only murdered them, because he because he has to, but created them to murder them mm-hmm. for his glory. Yeah. So is there any so when I talk to people and I try to make that same point, I'm not very good at it. What is the scriptural counterpoints to that? Because the, I will begin getting pegged with just oh, all sure. of this different, usually proof texted scripture on saying no, it says this and it says this and it says this. And Paul, my little yeah. canon inside the canon definitely says this. And so it is what it is. Sorry, Seth. You're just you're just yeah. gonna have to learn to live with it. Yeah. Hey, I've been there. I've made that argument many times. So one of the things I actually talk about in my new book is that scripture I think it's helpful to think that scripture contains a theology, like a single theology, but rather scripture contains theologies, you know, multiple theologies, people trying to express ideas from different perspectives. And so when we go to the Bible thinking like, well, what does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches a number of things on this, I think. So that's where I always end up in a weird place where I want to stick up for Calvinism sometimes, because I do think that it is a biblical option. Like I think you can absolutely read scripture and come away thinking it teaches something like Calvinism. Um, You'd be a fool to argue that, right? Obviously it does. We wouldn't have so many people who believe it. And so you can interpret Romans 9 through 11, you know, in a Calvinistic double predestination fashion that what Paul's doing there talking about Jacob and Esau can be, you know, extrapolated out to a doctrine about what God has done with all humanity. Jacob, I've loved Esau, I've hated. I chose it before they'd done anything, you know, so that's the big proof text, but there are lots of them, man. I mean, there are tons of them. If, if you want to go into it with that framework, you can absolutely walk away a happy and satisfied Calvinist from a biblical perspective. And I'd never argue against that. I would just argue it is not the only biblical perspective. If I'm being created to be damned effectively, because I happen to live in the wrong country, most likely. Yeah. How do we deal with the problem of sin and evil? What is, what is salvation then? Or I guess, where do you stand on that? Like me answering for me or me answering for what a Calvinist would no, you answering for you. Like I know, like so the Calvinist view that I grew up with is um, you know, Christ paid the debt for me, which isn't yeah. much forgiveness. That's more of a contractual transaction. Um, I do not hold to a penal substitution view. I don't know if you do or not. I can't remember. Um, it's okay if you do. So what then is the purpose of Christ having to die for something? I'm trying to I'm trying I'm saying this wrong. So I create an entire planet and I decide to save six percent of them. The, the people that read it this way to say that they're the 6% that get saved. Yeah. And so to do that, I'm not going to make another arbitrary rule and just send Jesus to die for him, but not the other 94%. So what is the whole purpose of, of Easter? So from my perspective, um, 
we actually, I just talked about this at my church the other day. So I think scripture really clearly teaches a few things. So like Romans 5, 18, um, I think teaches that everybody has been justified. Uh, Colossians 1, 19 through 20 really clearly teaches that all things have been reconciled to God through Christ. First John 2, 2 teaches that Jesus has atoned for the sins of the whole world. Um, Jesus says when he's lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. And so I think it's pretty inescapable to say scripture teaches that all people are justified. Uh, all people have been atoned for. All people have been reconciled. And Jesus is going to draw all people to himself. Now, that said, I'm not a universalist because, uh, you know, I think reconciliation can be experienced in different ways by different people. And so I think God will love all people forever. But some people might just hate him for it because their hearts have grown cold, crooked, callous because they spent their whole lives embracing hatred, unforgiveness, you name it. I've been that sort of person. And so when it comes to the question of like the unevangelized and what happens to them, man, I just that is well above my pay grade to answer questions like that. What I know (laughs) is that God will be more merciful than we can ever imagine. And um when we see the way everything plays out, none of us will be disappointed. And I have complete confidence in that. And so, no, I don't, I don't at all think that only people who, you know, hear the gospel as we have defined it, you know, in a few short steps and respond to it in this life as we have defined it will be saved. Um, If there's anything scripture teaches us about heaven, it's that it's a place full of surprises. And so I have no doubt that we'll be surprised. Um, There's this great little anecdote. Someone asked Carl Bart at some point at some lecture, they said, Dr. Bart, um, will I see my loved ones in heaven? And Bart says, well, not just your loved ones. Um, And I think that speaks to the fact that the kingdom of God will be full of surprises. And I think God looks for excuses to let people in and not keep people out. And um, I'm content to kind of leave it there. Your love will come and rescue me. So how you find a way to reach me when I can't see the road before me when the world is spinning out of control? Your love is like my gravity leads me to free will. So in, in a Calvinist view, and, and this is one of the reasons one of my relationships didn't work out at Liberty, went home to meet her family and I wasn't going to have that argument because I was wrestling with it partially then, um, yeah. wasn't as well formed, but I just refused to have a lifetime of that until her her father died about arguing about Calvinism, um, which I think would have been inescapable. So in a Calvinist view, the one thing I always asked him is what's the whole purpose? Like if, if I was already predestined to be saved, why am I even here? Why are we talking about this? Why even witness? And he's like, well, cause we're called to, I was like, but you just said it doesn't matter. I, it doesn't matter. I have no choice in this. And so I, I hear that. And, and what I'm hearing you say a bit is, is, you know, God's going to find reasons through Jesus to let people in. And so I then hear that I can not accept that. So I have, I have choice in this decision, correct? Absolutely. How that is not the American scriptures that you normally hear preached. How, how does that work versus the gentleman that you preach with at your church, where I have to think that when you preach something on Sunday, he won't agree with it because that matters. I mean, the, the, what happens through the atonement of Christ matters. So how, how can on one hand, we say the, only these certain people are going to get in. Uh, and on the other hand, maybe next week you say, yeah, but you're choosing to get in there and he's going to let you in because you asked if you could come in. And of course he said, sure, why not? Come well, on in. I told you he was an inconsistent Calvinist, didn't I? Um, <laughs> so, um, 
you know, Calvinists have answers for stuff like that. You've heard them. I mean, the typical answer would be uh, obviously a, a technical term here, but a compatibilistic definition of what free will is. And so that's kind of, I think, mainly from Edwards. But the idea is that we're free so long as we're doing what we want to. So God doesn't act directly on us to make us do things. It's that God through, you know, who knows how many factors God determines what we will want. And if God has determined what we will want, then, you know, God can lock things into a certain direction, but we're still free because we're doing what we want. And to be free means you're doing what you want. And so, you know, that would be the standard Calvinist definition is, yeah, it has been determined, but you're still free because you're free to do what you want. Yes, God has determined what you want, but you know, you don't want to peek too far behind the curtain. I mean, that's the general idea there. Um, well, to just rebut that back, and I've said this at, when I was at Liberty, you can say all that and put me on this interstate and tell me I'm allowed to freely go on whichever one of these four lanes, east through Dallas, but I feel like driving backwards, going west on the same road. Yeah. Well, and so at a, you asked specifically about it at our church. So at our church, I mean— People know where he stands and they know where I stand. And so if he preaches Romans 9, he preaches it like a Calvinist does. And if I preach it, I I don't. And I think we underestimate people's ability to live with that tension and to understand that these are two um, traditions that have been present in Christian thought for a really long time. And again, we have been called to a unity that, in my opinion, transcends those differences. And um so how do we do it? Well, we get up there and we just do it. And then we worship with each other and then we pray with each other. And it's really not as complicated sometimes. As <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> and so then in in your view, is salvation, what, what form of salvation do you hold to or atonement theory? Is it is it penal substitution? Is it something all the, altogether different? Oh, man. I mean, I tend to be, so Scott McKnight's a friend and someone I really respect. Scott I think Scott makes a good argument that in some sense, some form of substitution is inevitable. And we've probably thrown the baby out with the bathwater a little bit on penal substitution, gone way too penal, which I would agree with. You know, Um, I I don't think there's like a a pound of flesh that God has to take out of humanity in order to forgive humanity. You know, I would tend to lean more Christus Victor, but with certainly some substitution language. Christ died in our place for our sins, according to the scriptures. Right. That's what Paul said. Paul said it, that's good enough for me. The mechanics of how that works and like how the math works is just not something I've ever found particularly interesting or gotcha. helpful. And so I tend to leave it there. I read a word the other day and it was a few weeks before Easter. And since then, I've been digging into it. Are you familiar with a concept called theosis? I have to think that you are. Yeah. So yeah. I read Gregory McDonald. And so it's, he basically was saying that, you know, salvation is that when the power of Christ is received and it's in us and we're changed that we are becoming glory. Like he is, he is changing us from something that we were into like him, like into little gods. And yeah. so I don't quite know how I fit that into anything yet. Yeah. But I wish that someone would have told me when I was younger that <laughs> that, that, that was an option. Sure. <clears throat> um, what do you find is the biggest thing lacking as people have these conversations now, because from what I can tell, they get heated. And so what is the biggest thing lacking when you'll have a Calvinist or an Arminius or a, a, a monologist or, or I said that wrong. I'll, I'll edit that out. Um, a Calvinist or people with differing views. Um, it, it has to be A or B. There's no middle. There's no gray. It's, it's extremely yeah. dualistic. 
Man, I so I get a lot. Of, so that was one of the when I wrote the book. Obviously, there was you know pushback from some Calvinists. For the most part, it was all really good stuff. The pushback I wasn't quite expecting um, was from the people who were like, "Hey, this is not an A or B thing. There's a C here. Let's find the middle ground." And you know, again, I just I don't think. I understand that God is infinitely beyond me, yada, yada, yada. But I, I don't know how you can rationally affirm there's a middle ground here. I don't think Molinism works. I think either God ordained the fall and has selected certain individuals to salvation and passed over others, or God hasn't. And I think either we have um, a free will that's not just compatible as free will, or we don't. And I don't know. It's incoherent for me, logically, to affirm that there's a middle ground there. Um, so I don't think there's a middle ground like as a position, but I do think that we do have to learn how to worship together, obviously. Um, so what's missing on the Calvinist end, I mean, you know, so when I did the debate in Chicago with, um, is with Brian and I teamed up with uh, a pastor named Daniel Montgomery and a professor named Timothy Jones, I think it was. And one of the things they wrote about in their book was that there's a certain kind of mind that tends to be drawn to Calvinism. And they actually quote Piper. And the big idea is, you know, is just that a Calvinist can kind of be a jerk. This is the short of what they're trying to say as Calvinists, not my words. OK, just to be clear, their words. Um, so I just think for Calvinists to understand that, um, you know, there is a way to be a, a biblically and theologically responsible and smart Christian without being a Calvinist. And actually, you know. I know in our current climate in Western Christianity, it has felt like Calvinism is kind of the majority position. You know, in the bigger scope of church history, Calvinism proper is really a remarkably minority position. And I just think it would probably be good for our Calvinist friends to remember that they're a pretty small minority uh, and it's fine and God bless them. And again, I will fight for their right to be what they want to be and have a seat at the table. But they are the minority, and so a little bit of humility would probably serve them well. Um, on the other end, you know, just to realize that, um, whatever, you're open theist, Arminian, classical theism, to understand that not, you know, all Calvinists are just heartless moral cretins who uh, don't <laughs> love people and don't want to do missions. And there's some really remarkable people, and some of my best friends are Calvinist. And it's not only possible, it's important um, to charitably do ministry and worship alongside people we disagree with because if the gospel can't do that it's not credible i'm currently reading a book uh for for a later conversation in the year and he 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 basically makes the metaphor that you know as you and i are different bodies of christ and as 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 the community comes together all the parts make the whole basically argues that no, so does Pentecostal, so does Calvinist, so does Arminius, that all of these different theologies, as you alluded to earlier, are coming together to make a whole. And fundamentalists have a seat at the table and do some things extremely well. And so do evangelicals, and so do XYZ, what, fill in the blank. And and so he basically is trying to say, stop yelling at each other. Mm-hmm. Like, there's some things they do very poorly, but you won't find anybody you know, do a Samaritan's purse or go help out a hurricane because that amount of structure and rigor allows that to happen. It's, it's militaristic almost in the precision, but a different form of church that's loosely based. You can't do that. You you can raise a bunch of money and then send it nowhere. 
Well, like one of the things I've noticed is um, <clears throat> over the last couple of years where some of the racial issues have really kind of come to the forefront in American culture. Um, you know, like I have a funny relationship with the Gospel Coalition. I like to think they just don't know they love me yet. Um, <laughs> so theologically, I, I disagree with them on a lot of things. But those folks have stuck up and been on the forefront of some of these racial conversations in a way that a lot of people um, who, you know, are not Calvinist have not been. They've been brave. They've been at the front. They've been taking shots for other people. And so, man, I will work alongside people like that all day long. And when we see people we disagree with doing good work, we ought to really affirm it instead of begrudgingly, you know, well, yeah, but they're still Calvinist. And so what does it matter? You know, we need to affirm the good and the faithful where we see it. Are you familiar with a different acronym? And, and for those listening, when I say acronym, that's because for predominantly Calvinists, that you know, there's that tulip acronym or daisy or roses or depending on where you want to go. I saw one the other day that Brad Jersak had shared entitled WEAT. Have you ever heard of this acronym? Well, I follow Brad on Twitter, too, so I think I saw him uh, post it, but I, I didn't look into it. So it, it's basically, and I don't actually know what informs it, but I, I think I like it. Um, so basically it's, it's you know, that we're all wounded and depraved creatures, but God's desire is not to punish us, it's to heal us. Um, and then H is that we are all, we're not merely individual humans, humanity stands together as a whole, either fallen or broken or being redeemed as a whole, that God has never needed to reconcile himself to us in a penal substitutionary way, but that yeah. he will exhaust every possibility to bring us to reconciliation, that his grace is absolute, and that that power, that transformation is changing you into, quote-unquote, theosis, like a, a little God. Yeah. And I think I like it. I don't actually know what the doctrinal theology is behind it. Um, I was just was curious if you're familiar with that acronym at all. I'm not, but from what you just said, I like it too. And uh, <laughs> I would assume, you know, I would assume that would be at home in a number of traditions. I mean, you could be an open theist and affirm that. You could be a classical theist and affirm that. You could be an Arminian and affirm that. And so I think that's a pretty broad umbrella. Yeah. Well, it definitely is broad because I, I quoted no scripture in there. So to be fair, <laughs> to be fair. So how then... So I hear this, so and, and I, 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 I recognize that everyone, if they're willing to be honest about their questions, is going to go through a series of, if I'm not Calvinist anymore, then I'm not Christian. Or if I'm not Arminianist anymore, I'm not Christian. Or if I'm not Baptist anymore, I can't be Christian. And so how do we, how should we as, as a church, or how do you as a pastor counsel people through that doubt and that grief and that, that experience of loss? Because um, it's... I find for many religion is extreme, almost as important as family. Where if okay. you take away that, that it's like taking two tires off the car, and mm -hmm. it, it you just stuck, and you can't go forward or backwards. You just fall into despair. So how do you counsel yeah. people? How should people engage in that? That's a great question. Um, I like to think of it in terms of um, deconstruction and reconstruction. And so a lot of what a lot of us go through when we walk away from you know, any sort of theology or faith that was at the center of our lives, be it Calvinism or something else, a denominational affiliation, you name it. Um, man, it, it's like losing your home, you know, and so you just feel homeless and you know what you don't believe, but you don't know what you do believe. And a lot of times you don't feel like you have the space to put it all back together again. Um, and it's a painful, I mean, it, depression is really the best way to explain it. You get lost and you feel depressed. And so, um, 
always take people to the book of Job. Um, you know, Job is someone who almost more than any other place in the Bible, you see someone doing theology in real time. Like Joel has this, Job has this picture of God and who God is. Um, he goes through some things that cause him to question that. Other voices come into the conversation in the form of his three slash four friends who keep trying to tell him, you know, um, it's so obvious what God is doing here. And you just need to believe what you've always believed. Praise God. Don't doubt. Get over it. Move on with your life. Um, but Job can't do it. Job can't walk away. And Job says like some terrible things to God, you know, outrageous, blasphemous things. And yet, you know, at the end of Job, God says that Job's friends who told Job to praise God, don't doubt and get over it, that they spoke wrongly of God and that God's anger is kindled against them. And then God says that Job, who said all these absurd things about God, has spoken rightly and tells Job, you better go offer a sacrifice for your friends so they don't get what's coming. Um, And I think that's just a beautiful way to process what it looks like to faithfully handle your doubts. Um, and so what I think it is, is when you got doubts, you bring them to God. And if you don't believe in God, you tell God you don't believe in God. Uh, you keep the conversation with God going, even when you don't have anything nice to say. And even when maybe you don't believe there's a God and somewhere in the midst of that struggle, Job, for example, never got answers to why God never told him, Hey, I made this stupid bet with Satan. (laughs) My bad. Everything (laughs) as a result of it. God never tells him that God says, Job, you're little. Creation is more complex than you could ever imagine. But Job walks away having encountered the living God. And that's the point of it all. You know, when you got doubts, they are an opportunity to encounter the living God if you lean into them instead of away from them. Uh, And so that's kind of that's been my story. And that's what we teach people here at my church. They're an opportunity, not an obstacle for faith. I wholeheartedly agree. My um, my pastor has, has said many times you know, that unasked questions are entirely more dangerous than just oh. badly answered ones. Like it's the people who leave faith are not people who have doubts. It's people who have doubts and think they are not allowed to have them. Those are the people who leave faith. I've so rarely seen someone who was honest about their doubts to leave faith. It's usually someone who had them, bottled them up because they didn't think they were allowed to. And their doubts ate them up from the inside, and they eventually imploded. Do you think you can do those doubts and stay in your same church or stay in your same lane? Or does it require us to, to, to veer? Like, is it fine for someone listening to go, you know, I don't know that I even want to go to church anymore. And, and so they're, they're obviously relieving themselves of the fellowship. Yeah. So I guess my question is, and something I struggled with, as I threw everything apart and I basically took the the building that I made out of these Legos that was my house and my faith and my my hope and wrecked it all and began to rebuild it, I found myself questioning whether or not I was allowed to put bricks back where I wanted to put them, whether or not I was interpreting that right, whether or not the people that I was reading or listening to were good people to read and listen to. So how do you measure that? Oh, <clears throat> you know... I really like to emphasize like a fidelity and a faithfulness to a particular church and not just leaving when it gets tough. Like I think it was Eugene Peterson somewhere. Someone had asked him how to choose what church to go to. And he said, um, what do you say? The smallest and the closest. That's how you should choose what church you go to. Be able to walk to it. And there's, I think, you know, I would add a few uh, amendments to Eugene's advice there. Um, And so I, I do think it's important to not just leave when it gets tough. However, Um, I think it's important to be at a church where doubts 
are given room to breathe. And, you know, where the book of Job is a real part of the canon and Jesus hanging on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, that even Jesus knows what it's like to feel forsaken by God. Um, you got to be at a church that allows you to process those things, honestly. Um, and so if you're not, you know, I think it's fair to start thinking about whether or not you should go somewhere. But I do think it's important that you find somewhere because the worst thing that you can do is, um, you know, wall yourself away from Christian faith and think that you're going to just huddle up and sort through all these massive existential problems on your own. And then once you do, you'll come back to church. That's just not the way faith works. Um, faith at its bottom is communal. And if you cut yourself off from the wisdom of the church, you know, good luck sorting through the problem of evil. <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's a foolish thing to do. And I understand that people need breaks. I really do. Um, but as soon as possible, I think it's important to be grounded in a community where you can honestly ask and sort through some of those doubts. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I want to end with something that is in any form or way confrontational. So what would be, as as we close, what would be something that someone's listening to that you'd like to say, you know, here is what you can do to bring something to your faith that is generative, that is fulfilling, that if you walk away and you're questioning Calvinism, if you're not questioning Calvinism, or if that's even the reason that you clicked on the link to listen, here's the one thing that you should take home, take to heart, pray on it. What would that be? Oh, so um, I didn't mention this in my journey away from Calvinism, um, but like the thing. So when I when, when that happened to me, so here's the advice that, you know, that I gave to myself when that happened to me. And I knew I had to walk away from Calvinism and I worried that I was walking away from faith, period. And I didn't know what to do and I didn't know where to start and I didn't know where to lay what brick or even what sort of foundation I had. You just kind of go back to the basics. And for me, it was Jesus is God. So let's look at Jesus and see what we learn about God from looking at Jesus. And Jesus, I mean, Jesus, Jesus is the best thing Christianity has going, man. Um, and Jesus is beautiful. And Jesus literally transformed the world without lifting a finger because of the moral beauty of his life. Um, and if you focus on Jesus, um, I think you come to the point. So I'm at the place where even if Christianity was false and I knew it, I would still rather be wrong about Jesus than right about anything else. Um, and that's that like settledness of conviction that provides you the stability that you need to know that you're never going to know for sure, you know, and we don't have the luxury of not deciding not to decide is to decide, you know, a little Kierkegaard there. You, you have to choose. We're all committed. And so given the fact that you can never be sure, but you have to commit, what are you going to do? Uh, and I would say choose Jesus because Jesus is beautiful. And even if Jesus wasn't the truth, he's so beautiful that you won't mind it anyways. Amen. Amen to that. Well, you, and I, I missed it. It's my fault. I did not see on your author page that you have another book coming. So what is this new book? Yeah, um, it's called Faith in the Shadows. Um, and it's uh, a book about kind of my journey through skepticism and doubt as a pastor. So, you know, I know I'm not allowed to doubt. I'm a pastor, but I do. Um, <laughs> And so the book is kind of about my journey with doubt, um, exploring the nature of doubt and faith and how they relate to each other. Um, we look at a few specific issues, problem of evil, science, health, fundamentalism, materialism, and, um, you know, whether or not faith is worth it and really makes sense in the end. And so that's what the book is about. It comes out on September 11th. So a few so months. This year. 
Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to add that to the I'm going to add that to the list because yeah. that, that is effectively where we were ending this conversation. So, mm-hmm. if you're willing, I'd love to talk to you about that at a later date, but sure. I'd rather I'd rather read the book first. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, That's great. Well, Austin, thank you for your time and uh, for your honesty. I appreciate it very much. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to get to talk to you a little bit. Thanks for doing the podcast. Red scars deep inside of my chest Where I opened up my heart So cold So really, really when you, when you think about things and you think about doubt and grief and I think about my upbringing, I appreciate honest pastors and, and there are many of them that are willing to let you doubt. I have the privilege that I, I currently worship with one uh, that will allow that to happen without uh, fear of being told that I can't be a Christian. If you were struggling with doubt, if you were sitting with things and, and you're wondering why you feel like you need to question or you're, you're wondering if the foundation that you have is even worth reevaluating, if you should just burn it all to the ground, uh, I will say Austin has a new book coming out th- later this fall, and it is titled Faith in the Shadows, and that is what it deals with. It deals with grief and with doubt and the process of working through that. I would encourage you to pre-order that and, and to read that, and I, I think that could be helpful. I know that I, I plan to do the same. The beautiful music that you heard today is from artist Landry Cantrell. You can find his music at LandryCantrell.com. You'll find links to that in the show notes, and you'll find the songs that were featured today on the Can I Say This at Church playlist. Thank you for listening. Thank you so, so much to the patron supporters. Follow the show on Facebook and on Twitter. You can find on Facebook at facebook.com slash can I say this at church on Twitter at Sistac Podcast. Talk to you next week. Be blessed. Be blessed.